Hello, welcome back to episode 24 of Prog Notes. My name is Destin. And I'm Drew. And today we are listening to Misplaced Childhood by Marillion. If you've never listened to our show, our go... Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and redo that. Oh, okay. If you've never listened to our show, <laughs> our goal... Screw it. You guys know what we do here. Our goal is to educate and hopefully inspire you to uncover and learn about music from the progressive rock archives that you may have never heard of or want to learn more about. If you're coming back to the show, welcome back. And if you enjoy what you hear today, we'd be very grateful if you shared the episode to someone who needs to hear this awesome genre of music. And always be sure to subscribe so you will be notified when we launch a new episode. So, Misplaced Childhood is the third studio album by the British neo-prog rock band Marillion, released June 17, 1985, and recorded in Hansa Studios in West Berlin, Germany. Uh, Marillion was formed in Islesbury, Buckinghamshire in 1979. Marillion has recorded 19 studio albums since 1982 and have two distinct area, eras excuse me, delineated by their lead singer. The first one being... <laughs> first, the first one being Derek Dick, <laughs> otherwise known as Fish, who left the band. I can't. That guy's name, dude. If I had that guy's name, I'd have to have a stage name. It's bad. Anyway, who left the band in 1988 and the replacement Steve Hogarth in 1989. That being said, this album was during the Fish era. <laughs> the other the other members of the band include Steve Rothery on guitar. I can't get through this, Drew. Do you want to send me this your is- notes and I'll just <laughs> I'll just uh I'll just read them? No, I got it. I got it. Steve oh, Rothery okay. on guitar. Mark <laughs> Kelly on keyboards. Pete Trevavis. Trevavis, I think it's Trevavis. On bass, uh, who is also a member of Transatlantic, actually, and uh, and Ian Mosley on drums, who played drums on Steve Hackett's two solo records, and the fifth drummer brought into the group. And uh, so anyway, <laughs> the writing sessions for Miss Money's Childhood started in, ni- in the late 1984, and the first side of the album slowly took shape after a disastrous recording sessions of their second album, Fugazi, which spanned across 10 studios and three different producers, EMI wanted wanted a cheaper solution for the recording of the next album and sent the band to the utterly cheap and unknown Hansa Studios in West Berlin, Germany, uh, which I believe was during the Cold War, if I'm right. Yeah. Uh, 1985, Cold War, yeah. Yeah. Um, So producer Chris Kimsey, who worked for the Rolling Stones previously, was brought in. uh, And just fun fact about Hansa, uh, David Bowie had uh, recorded his Heroes album, years before at the studio um anyway the whole album was was recorded and mixed within two months um which i find pretty impressive uh recorded a full record like this in two months so uh but what were the uh the critics thoughts on this whole record i totally butchered that intro but we're gonna roll with it i'm sorry give me a moment okay uh this was very well received from, and I had heard of this record beforehand. Not only you, but a couple of our friends who also enjoyed prog rock had suggested this as a really solid prog rock record, and the critics thought so as well. Um, I found very few reviews that were negative. There's obviously going to be a couple, especially when you look on places where it's user-generated content and stuff. Um, right. it, you know, where anyone can comment and all that stuff. You're obviously going to get some negative feedback. Um, but uh, for the most part, everyone loved it. Uh, it reached number one in the UK charts in, eight, in 1985. Um, 
uh, number three in the German charts, number six in the Netherlands, number 47 in the US charts. So not as high as in Europe, but still still pretty good because um, that's yeah. on the Billboard 200. So you're you're in the top 50 there. Um, number six in uh, Switzerland, number 15 in Sweden, and number 10 in Norway. So it's pretty popular. This is a very popular. It's very popular for them for the success of their band. That was their. Com- this is the the Marillion record. This yep. is the the record. Um, it's like Dark Side of the Moon for Pink Floyd. Uh, lots of other people like like The Wall and some of their other stuff. But let's be honest, their best selling was Dark Side of the Moon. Yeah. Or Moving Pictures 100%. for Rush. You know, they just have their their landmark records, and this was the landmark record for this group. Um, it stayed on the charts in the UK for forty one weeks, which is a considerable amount of time especially with how much music is produced in and out and always has been over the last crud, I don't know, 50, 30, 40 60 years, 50, years. Yeah, yeah crud. Yeah, I exactly. mean, pop music's been going on for forever and radio is even bigger back then than it is now. Yep. Um, but uh, it was the 20th best selling album in 1985 in the UK. Um, so very successful for them uh, in both terms of numbers and as far as critical reception. Um, I'll read you some of what I found on what people said about it on Prague archives, um, which I've mentioned several times. They, the, the user rating was 4.25 out of five stars. 55% of people gave it a perfect score and 28% of them gave it a four out of five, which is still really, really good. Yeah. Um, I'll read an excerpt from, from some of these, um, you know what? Actually, I'm going to save that for after I've given you the numbers, and then we'll go into it because these reviews kind of touch on a lot of topics that deserve further explanation okay. and analysis. Uh, okay, I'm down. Sputnik Music, uh, the featured review, uh, gave it a 5 out of 5, and the average user rating on that site was 4.2 out of 5. Wow. Um, everywhere I found people just genuinely really enjoyed this, and even on places that didn't really give an opinion one way or the other, they the history of it was always mentioned in there as it being the band's most successful. Um, we've never done a record on the show, I think, as of now, where we've gotten like really awful across the board critic reviews. No. Am I right? I, no, I don't think we've gotten one that has been like – notoriously like just total, notoriously just yeah crap that people on. absolutely hated we've gotten yeah. mixed reviews on a couple of things but i mean it's like with any music um there's always going to be people who enjoy it and people who dislike it so right oh of course um but yeah for the most part uh so the reviews they were very frequently kind of referred to as a Genesis ripoff group. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a, a lot of what I saw with these reviews and just looking into the history of the group is that lots of people thought they were very similar to Genesis, but they just came later. Um, and you can hear it in his voice even. It's just the, I think it's the voice. It's the voice. But then again, well, I mean like, like it's Bill the guitar Collins too. And, yeah. Yeah. They have it's some the, of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but they are pretty similar. I see. I see why they kind of got that that rap in a way. And no one likes to be called a ripoff or anything, so I'm sure they resented that. But anyways, I preface that for for this 
excerpt I'm going to read here from this review. Yeah. Aurelian's excellent 1985 album. Oh, sorry. This is from the Pard Archives one. Gotcha. Uh, this is gotcha. from uh, Peter. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Why? Why did you say his name like that? Because... <laughs> what is up with I the name, expecting... dude? No, I was expecting it to be like, oh, Peter <laughs> Tillman, or like have a last name, but I forget that this is like username stuff. So you'll have like, <laughs> it's just Peter. Who wrote this? <laughs> who wrote this? It could be uh, Mr. Prog Lover Twenty Two or whatever. Right, right, yeah. But this is names. just Peter. <laughs> I <laughs> no nothing else. It's just one of the okay. most common English names, male All names right. there is. Okay, just Peter. All right. Okay, what, what does Peter, Peter have to say? say. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Marillion's excellent 1985 album, Misplaced Childhood, lends considerable weight to the argument that not all the best progressive rock was written in the 70s. Granted, this recording could never have happened if Genesis hadn't first blazed the trail that Marillion follow so well here, but that's just the way that art often develops. Marillion may be inspired by Genesis, but wasn't the music of Beethoven an edifice built upon the foundation that Haydn and others had laid? Regarding the often leveled charged, sorry, the often leveled charge of Fish's vocals being imitative of Gabriel's, I find it well within the realm of possibility that two people could have very similar singing voices and conclude, lucky me, having more musical choices is always good. And I simply like to hear Fish sing passionately, fronting this very polished and powerful band. Um, and at the end, he said, in keeping with its theme, Misplaced Childhood shone out like a beacon of hope for the future of progressive rock in the 80s and still thrills today. It is recordings like this one made some 10 years after the heydays of its... Uh, Progenitors? Pro, I don't know. I, progenitors? I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe, the, give, maybe the people who followed? I yeah, I, I think so. Okay. That, that, that give me continued faith in the future of the genre. A latter-day progressive rock classic. Hmm. So he had great things to say about that, and I thought that was a good point to put in there. It was like, hey, this Genesis had to come first for this to happen, for sure. True. But, yeah. uh, you know, everything is in a way influenced by other things and you can draw parallels so many times on a bunch of different artists by stuff they did before, you know, by, by people who came before them. Yeah. So, uh, that was interesting. I'll also read a little bit from the Sputnik music review. Um, Sputnik, you know, it's Russian, so it's obviously very credible. Um, whoa, Holy, whoa. Crap. What is okay. that even? What? Yeah, it's Russian. So it's credible. It's Russian. It's credible. Don't worry about it. Um, crap. This was written by <laughs> Torontonian. Get it? Because he's from Toronto. Good for ah. him. He's kind of embracing his heritage yeah, there with yeah. his username. Kind of like Jenison Merlian do, you know? Sure. Wide boys and, you know, the selling England by the pound, the whole Genesis. Shoot. English we're just really thing. reaching here. Okay. Right, we're just really going for that one. Uh, he gave it a five out of five uh, <laughs> on here, so he really enjoyed it. He said, the lyrics stay true to the spirit of childhood. Childhood is, of course, a phase of human life in which very few dams are given, a time where one can bask in the simplicity and carelessness sanctioned by lack of fiscal responsibility, a time where one can enjoy the simple pleasures in life to their fullest extent, a time in which every grown-up recalls in morose longing. For those reasons... Fish abandons any aim of lyrical complexity and directs his attention to creating the most wishful and visceral lyrics imaginable, purposefully trying to incarnate. Jeez, I'm sorry. My allergies are killing me. 
Give me just a second. Oh, that's good. You're okay. okay. I'm great. I I'm, I'm sorry. Let me start that over. For those reasons, Fish abandons any aim of lyrical complexity and directs his attention to creating the most wistful, not wishful. I couldn't see. My eyes were watering. Creating the most wistful and visceral lyrics imaginable, purposefully trying to incarnate the quintessence of childhood into lyrical form. Each and every song recalls youth into the listener's heart. And towards the end, he says, due to the heavy emphasis on vocals, the instrumentalists are somewhat felt to be pushed to the side, especially for the usual wank-filled norms of prog. Even the nearly 10-minute epic Blind Curve places true marvels such as Peter uh, Trawafa's secondary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, th I think it's Trawafa's or, yeah. Trawafa's, yeah. Blind Curve places true marvels such as Peter Trawafa's secondary to penmanship, something quite unheard of in prog rock epic, in a, in a prog rock epic. But one must remember, this is an album made to commemorate a time where simplicity reigns. Getting caught up in the complexities and excesses of Prague would be a fatal contradiction to what this album stands for. I thought that was interesting. I like that. I think that's kind of something that we'll, we'll definitely touch on later. But a, a big part of it is that this was part of the Neo-Prague movement. In fact, it had been called... Uh, let me see this. This album had been called the cornerstone of the entire neo-prog movement, quote unquote. And oh man, I think what I just read at the end of that is kind of a a great way to describe it. Uh, it, it, it kind of neo-prog, I think, kind of stripped the excess of the pioneers hmm. in a way. Yeah. Not saying that it's actually my favorite. Or that that's necessarily sure. a, a good thing. It can, it can be. But that's a, that's something we'll get into later, I think, on the discussion of neo-prog and what it is and how you and oh, I yeah. feel about it, how other people feel about it, um, what it is, et cetera, et cetera. I know you yeah. have a lot of thoughts just on the idea of, like, you're angry at it's, dude, the it, internet. It's, dude, the internet, it's just, it bothers me. It's bothering The internet me. bothers you? The internet, not, not the internet in general. <laughs> the internet... <laughs> On Neo Prague is it just bothers me. Like the way it, it okay. I went into like I went into some like really in-depth research for what is Neo Prague. I was like, okay, I really have never like coined I've never said that term ever before before this episode. Right. I've never been like, oh what you know, hey Destin, what's your favorite you know, what's your favorite type of music? Oh, just you know, Prague rock and you know, Neo Prague. I've never said that. Like that's not like Neo reactionary post fusion, post -fusion dad, dad core. core. Yeah, that's an that's a genre. And <laughs> neon so, nightmare creature punk. Yeah, creature pop. I don't know. Oh shoot. Yeah, I, I don't understand. Yeah, but anyway, so like the neo prog. I was I was looking this up, and I was and honestly, when we were having conversations, you and I were having conversations. I thought the way that you described neo prog was five times better than anything I found on the internet. I looked at several respected websites on Neoprog and how they're defining it. And what I found is that there's just so much inconsistency when trying to pin down what actually constitutes a Neoprog definition, okay? Okay, here, I, you know what? Screw this. I'm going to find it right now. Some statements I found online in attempting to label Neoprog. Hold on. I'm going to pull this up. I'm not even kidding. Dude, I'm I not even kidding. Gonna, no, I think you're going to find that this is really only a huge issue for you. I'm just it saying. It really is. It probably is, but it's bothering me. 
all right? But this is going to set up. This is going to set up success for you to be able to explain what Neoprog is, okay? According, right. according to Prague Archives, it says this, quote, Neoprog is a subgenre of progressive rock that originally was used to describe artists strongly influenced by the classic symphonic prog bands that flourished during the 1970s. At the beginning of the Neoprog movement, the primary influence was early to mid 70s genesis debate over when neoprog actually came into being often takes place some asserting it began with marillion's script for a uh, script for jester's tear in 1983 while some even suggest genesis gave rise to neoprog with their 1976 album a trick of the tail the new form of prog rock originated in the uk and is most strongly associated with bands like marillion iq and pendragon okay first off strongly influenced by the classic symphonic prog bands of the 70s while searching the internet looking for bands that were labeled as neoprog because i listened to a lot of them i was trying to find out like what is what is this whole deal i was it was amazing to see that in every single case of the bands that represented this subgenre were in fact in symphonic in nature like th the lists would include like i said before i like iq and and also marillion uh, I, I listened to some Jadis, Twelfth Night. I listened to some Pendragon, Arena. And in some cases, I, was, I found people were mentioning like Spock's Beard and Glass Hammer. And I listened to a Flower Kings album and so on. And so like to my eyes with this whole thing, it was like there's only symphonic bands. Like I'm hard pressed to name a single band that might be labeled as neo-prog and not be a symphonic prog band. If anybody can argue this, I mean, I'm sure somebody can, but there's a reason for this. And I really do think that the reason is that all these bands are, in fact, first and foremost, symphonic, symphonic prog bands, creating music that was in the same tradition as the original prog rock icons, if that makes sense. Like, each of the new bands incorporates new elements of the past, but then clearly have created their symphonic sound. Like, after 18 albums, to, to still describe Marillion as sounding like Genesis, like, kind of seems crazy to me. If we're to be fair and honest, I think Marillion sounds like Marillion in their own respect. Like I could see some of the the similarities and stuff, but I think they've separated themselves enough from Genesis to be Marillion. But bands like these are clearly second, third, or maybe even fourth generation symphonic prog bands. Like if you were to compare, no one labels the Rolling Stones neo rock, even though the blues and rock music of the late fifties and early sixties influenced them. Like, sorry for, okay, never mind. Sorry for the rant. But anyway, my contention is that the Neoprog is not distinct from symphonic, but it's an, in fact, every bit symphonic in nature. I just don't think, like, it's not a subgenre of symphonic because the bands identified are clearly holding true the symphonic trademarks. I don't, I don't know. After listening so, to, like, all kinds of different kinds of it, it just doesn't, I don't know. I can't separate those two. So you think that two. like Neoprog and Symphonic Prog are like kind of synonymous? Basically, yeah. But, but, but then, so then I'm like, okay, what are they describing both of these to be? What does it sound like? The musical components, right? So I went online and looked that up. And like the stuff that I found, if I can remember, like according to Prog Archives, like I was looking at Prog Archives, Wikipedia, like allmusic.com. It's typed by the use of, this is what it said. Here's what it said right here. I found it. It's typed by the use of atmospheric guitar and synth soloing with symphonic leanings, with a tendency towards floating synth layers and dreamy soloing. Another trait is the use of modern synths rather than vintage analog synths and keyboards, which I find that to be misconstrued from the very beginnings of rock and roll, 
technology has played a part in the forming of the sound of each era. That was true with the, the guitar technology in the 60s, the keyboard technology of the 70s. The sounds musicians make are the reflection of the day. Every era had its distinct signature sounds in some respect. Fact yeah. was, in the mid-80s, everyone in every musical genre was using the mother of all digital synthesizers, right. the DX7, the Yamaha DX7. So to single out a few prog bands that were also using those new digital sounds seems worthless. Like, are we? It's it's like putting some arbitrary higher standard on prog artists and their choice of instruments. Like, who's imposing that? Like I was telling you beforehand on on the, uh, before we got on the show, Rick Wakeman. He was using new technology side-by-side side with old, like the Moog and the Hammond organ. Like, he would have those on stage, but, like, those bands were used old with the new. But, like, regardless of the sounds that they use or were created or whatever, the use of new technology, which was around in the 80s here, you, you know, was, like, very much an integral part of prog rock and, and certainly no reason to marginalize those who do so. I don't, it's just strange to me. Like you can't you can't identify Neo Prog just by simply digital keyboard sounds, because that's just what everybody did at the time. And right. coming from like a symphonic coming from symphonic in nature, but then they would go on. Oh my god, dude! Then they would go on and they would say that Neo Prog is less complex than other symphonic prog. And I'm like, less com- how subjective can we get? Like Moody Blues for their first seven recordings created music that was a form of what today might consider complex yet few can deny that it's symphonic prog roots like there is still that symphonic element to it the, the music simplicity is hardly a case for calling it neo prog complexity is hardly an appropriate form of measurement for this kind of music like there's there are so many other contemporary bands like um like glass hammer or you know that i mentioned before like spock's beard or the flower kings and and many others whose music is not only far like far more complex in terms of composition, but also just uh, like, like arrangement and musicianship. Like you, complexity alone cannot be used to single out certain bands to call them neo prog. Was was eighties Pink Floyd neo prog? Like, I shoot, I don't even think it started in the eighties. Like if the <laughs> if the bands of the eighties make the neo prog group, then maybe those of the nineties should really be called really neo prog. And then the nose of, of the new millennium, we could call them, Drew. We, yeah, we could call them retro, really, neo-prog. Like, Re- retro neo-prog. Yeah, retro, really neo-prog. I don't know. Where does it end if we go down that road? Like, what? what I it, thought then, it like, was an 80s thing. I thought well, neo-prog I mean, was kind of an 80s. And that's where the term started. And that's when it got pinned on a lot of things. Yeah. And then, you know, later in the 90s, other terms started to be thrown around, like alt-rock and indie rock and stuff like that and right you know you get bands and the grunge movement started in the 90s and everything right. too. and so i thought and maybe it's just because marillion is the quote unquote th- this record particularly was the cornerstone of the neo prog movement i look to that and i see it as a very 80s sounding record yeah, um, oh, 100%. in a lot of respects. And so yeah. I was like, I feel like if you're going to attach this as the quintessence of Neoprog, then a lot of other 80s sounds are going to be, you know, uh, Neoprog is going to sound like the 80s because this record sounds a lot like the because 80s. Because it that sounds like the maybe, 80s. Yeah. That may be a, a, a logical fallacy. I don't know. 
Yeah, uh, I just like the neo prog as a term, like as a term to me just has no justifiable support. Like neo prog as a subgenre of symphonic prog, I just don't think can be logically supported by argument. I, I just think the term really has, well, in in th- to to what they're saying online has no value at all. Like it didn't make any sense. I I mean I got so like caught up in what they were trying to tell me because I was like, that doesn't make any sense. Because like, if you listen to a band like Greenslade, who I found when doing uh, research online, they're really cool. Actually. I would, I, I would highly recommend checking out Greenslade. Um, they showed up around like 1973, three or four years after King Crimson. Yes. Genesis, you know, they, they were, they actually came into, I mean, they came into existence after the genre's leaders. Like it's, they had if you go and listen to them they check out their sound it's almost quite like this you know and so i mean yeah you got you got the people who are the genres leaders who are taking taking the whole neo prog or taking the genre in its particular area but i there's just i can't find a way to be like where did this really start i mean i know that's always going to be argued you know what i mean like it could be argued when exactly. prog started it could be argued when prog started like when did, did it start started. with yes. exactly like that'll always be argued. That doesn't really get me caught up on it, but like, just yeah, I, I just I can't see any justifiable support online. But what you were telling me, and that I really really like though, is that okay? Like, let's say for instance, we're just taking this album, right? We're listening to Misplaced Childhood, Marillion, and they're saying that this is like a cornerstone neo prog record. Okay, so the elements of this are they different from prog rock in the '70s? Absolutely. Yeah, they're absolutely. But because it's different, does that make it a totally separate subgenre? That's that's where I'm getting like, okay, I, because the things that they're using to describe what neo prog is, that doesn't it just doesn't make any sense. Like I mentioned before, it doesn't make any sense. The the musical components, all of that stuff, it's just it's just because time happened. Like we moved into the '80s. Music is changing now because of new stuff, new technology, and all right. of that jazz. So anyway. I'm sorry. I totally ranted right there, but I kind of warned you beforehand. You're good, but because it changed, then you do kind of need a new term for it. You do need a new label to slap on it. Okay, maybe needs strong of a word, but that just happens when something sounds different and there are common elements that are missing and or added. Yes. People like to put a different term for it to attach yes. oh it sounds like this or that or that or that yeah and i agree and it's with hard that. to put labels on it at all we've actually yeah. talked with a couple of our fans about like the importance of labels or questioning the importance of labels just in general on you know or terminology per se on yep different genres of music and all that stuff and it's it's actually an interesting conversation but um i do you want you want me you want me to go into what i Yes, because My. like, and because I agree with everything you're saying, like with with the separation of like, okay, we have something new. How do we describe it? And and yada yada yada. The, the way that the internet did it, I think, just sucks. Like they did not <laughs> describe this well. There's so many. It's just there's so many. Yeah, logical fallacies that just can't be supported. But what you were telling me was actually more outside of the way that it sounded and more compositionally. And I really well. like that. And I don't know if this is right. This is just what I have observed from a lot of the prog bands that lasted into the into 80s, the 80s, yeah. The pioneers like Genesis and Rush, and even Pink Floyd to an extent, and 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 Marillion, and just kind of looking at all of them and thinking, 
what you could put a new term on. So right. you've done much more research and you have music historians on your side to argue with. Uh, not on your side, but to, to argue with in that whole conversation. Mine was yeah. kind of a self-invented definition, so that's kind of fun. Um, uh, yeah, okay. Um, I don't know where to start. It, it's hard to define, just like any other musical category, like classic prog in general. Like, right, just, yeah, yeah. That's hard to define anyways. But a couple of elements that were different. The lyrics were more personable, or sorry, personal, and or relatable rather than ambiguous and metaphorical. The concepts weren't set in fantasy times or with bizarre creatures. I mean, look at the colony of slipper men from the land lies down on Broadway. Right. Or like hemispheres from Rush. Like, you know, these like Greek mythology incorporated and these weird worlds that you visit while you're listening yeah. to this music. It wasn't so much that. The lyrics seemed to be from a modern point of view and contained struggles or situations that most people could relate to. Note how Neil Peart's lyrics became more digestible during Rush's 80s sound and were right. more emotional or sorry, more emotional or expressive rather than being shrouded with esoteric vocabulary or bizarre wor worlds. Which you which you talked about on our tribute to Neil Peart episode. I did. Like you talked I about did. how everything in the 80s or, or I think you more so specifically said the 90s, but like it started in the 80s where like stuff started getting a little bit more personal to Neil. And yeah, we started absolutely. talking about more things that were universal, like emotions and, and stuff like that, that people go through. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I think that that kind of happened with Genesis too. Now, uh, granted, you can attribute some of that to the fact that Peter Gabriel Changed left the writing. band. Right, yeah. Yeah, uh, after in 1975, after the Lamb Lies Down tour. Um, and Phil Collins took over. Uh, and whatever the reason, Genesis did start to write shorter, more radio-friendly tracks. They still had some prog elements in those in in their albums, though. Every now and then, they would have longer songs like "Tonight, Tonight, Tonight," where they have yeah. kind of an instrumental breakdown. That's you know, and the whole song lasts eight minutes. Or like Duke's "Travels," which is you know yeah. seven or eight minutes oh long. Oh lord! And they both of those songs have kind of these experimental musical breakdowns. Um, so I mean, and you know, Rush did it too. Rush actually was a bit shorter, I feel like, than even Genesis in the '80s. In fact, there are very few '80s Rush tracks that I can name that if any that go over like five or six minutes well the last one to go over 10 i mean was the camera eye in 81 i mean yeah I, I, I think um gosh i think i think that's right because i, I think, think we discussed right. that on on the moving pictures episode that was the last song that they did that was over 10 minutes and so right. all throughout yeah 82 84 85 87 89 and then yeah up to 91 93 all of those yeah. records were under all the songs were under 10 minutes yeah well on top of that because it kind of you know kind of goes hand in hand most concept albums have longer tracks on them oh 100%. and i i mentioned that to say that because the songs started to be shorter and more radio friendly and more direct lyrics and everything concept albums were not as common with neo prog and again this is my self-invented definition right. but I say that, and it's ironic because this album is Neo Prog, the staple of Neo Prog, and it is a concept album. Granted, yes, yeah. It, I mean, it's it true. is, it is. It's kind of vague. It's we'll got go a, into it's that got later. A theme, yeah. It's kind of, it's, it. I don't know. It doesn't seem as like conceptual or a story based as something like Twenty One Twelve or Hemispheres again, both Rush records or even 
Liam lies down on Broadway yeah. or the wall. I mean, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, it's it's musically it's it's musically conceptual. There's a lot of musical motifs that return, like the stuff from Lavender. I mean, and I some mean, of the, there the is, funk flow. You, but... you have like this thin thread of like, okay, maybe it's this one character that all these things are happening to, but it seems more autobiographical than it does. A, a, a different weird world you know what i mean sure yo yeah 100 um and again i think that's it's kind of cool though that they kind of combine i mean concept album the idea of this happening to a certain character they've created with more relatable topics and themes yes. and blah 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 yeah um i but, think i mean i think darks i think dark side did that to the to the best extent possible because i think right. dark side is a very relatable album and it's a concept album. Right, you know? right, right. No, totally. I absolutely agree. Um, that's a good point. Uh, yeah. Another thing that I found in Neo Prog is that the keyboards really took over everything. And that keyboard was a big instrument for the beginning and of prog rock to be, you know, at the start of it, right? I mean, yeah. think about Tony Banks. Yep. And think about even oh. with early or when Rush kind of became prog and less just rock and roll, which is what they were doing at the very beginning. They incorporated more synthesizers, and Getty yeah. would play the keys and synth pads with his feet. Yep. Um, and he would take a break from playing bass and start playing keyboard solos. Um, so, and crud, we talked about with the Beatles. They started to incorporate more right. mellotrons yeah. and stuff. electronic Same with King Crimson. keyboards. Exactly. So that's always been a thing, but in the 80s, it kind of overshadowed the guitar and... You can see that effect in again. I know we're such Rush nerds, but that was a that was a big problem for them because it was like, okay, where's the guitar now? And Alex, their guitarist, had a big problem. And think about it: with Genesis, they became a trio, yeah, and they lost Steve Hackett. Now, Mike Rutherford picked up the guitar. He's a multi instrumentalist, but the iconic sound of Hackett's voice was gone from the group. I, at, you know, I, there, there are some cool guitar parts in their 80s stuff and stuff without Hackett, but there was a signature sound to the guitar, and the guitar was a key, key component of early Genesis records, and oh, it was yeah. absent. It was not yeah. nearly as important or... <sighs> yeah, I, I guess I'll say that, as prominent yeah. in, in their music afterwards. Um, well, I think what happened to, with, with, with the keyboards and everything, they, they started becoming more, I mean, if you think about it, like if you think about the Hammond organ and you think about some of these older instruments, the Mellotron, like a lot of it was sitting in that sort of low mid range in terms of like a frequency scale. Like it was sitting underneath all of the, the high guitar parts and stuff with the newer technology coming into play. Now you have much more complex sounds, stuff that's clearer yeah. to hear and things that have a lot more higher frequencies involved with them. So they could start doing, and I'm not saying that they couldn't do this beforehand, but they started doing that more. They started taking over more soundscapes and started using leads and right. higher areas. So it was, it was competing with the guitar rather than right. being like a sound bed, like in the court of the right. Crimson King, you know, where it right, just has right, that right. massive Mellotron in it. It's, it was more of like a lead instrument. And that's, I think that's what attested to, which obviously, which is because of the technology attested to the stuff that was happening during this time with the guitar and the keyboards and stuff like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that was just a sound of the eighties that every, like you mentioned earlier, every band from almost every genre was using this. And that's just, 
yeah, like you say, that's just technology. That's how it changes. And, and you know, that's progressive in a way. That's how music yeah. changes. That's how music evolves, right? Technology is a huge part of that. And oh, yeah. why wouldn't you, right? I mean, you exactly. can't do the same stuff over and over. Part of what made prog rock to begin, what it was to begin with, was the fact that they did utilize and take advantage of new sounds. And guess what? That's, that's you know, the 80s was a time where a lot of bands did that. Granted, yeah. Granted, a lot of them did kind of sound similar because they kind of used them in the same way. Use them in the same way, yeah. I mean, it was um, it was very it was it was new at the time. People exactly. maybe didn't know how to use them at that point. I think, and, right? Yeah, uh, I think those, most people. I think most people would agree that the eighties were not a great time for progressive rock. No, per se. yeah, it was not <laughs> as as maybe as inventive or I mean that's all arguable. I mean, but we're listening to an eighty. I mean, we're on we're listening to a, a song or an album right in the middle of, of all that stuff. I mean, we're in 1985 right. with this record and right. we're reviewing it on the show. So there's a reason why it was so big. Right. Um, and how it impacted maybe future, future prog rock and, and maybe into the nineties or so. But, um, I'd be interested to do another Neo prog record. Oh, same here. Look, and look more. I'm sure we'll do that down the road. But just oh, yeah. looking kind of more into Neo Prog and what it is and like, okay, yeah. what are the parallels we see between, you know, whatever record we do and Misplaced Childhood and what are the differences? What are the, you know, so it, it, it would be interesting. Interesting. 100%. Yeah. There, I mean, we've, we've had a couple of people ask us if we were going to do stuff in that in that area. Like IQ, we've gotten some recommendations for IQ and, and some Pendragon. We'll, we'll definitely do it because I'm I'm so curious about it because of all of the stuff that I've been looking at with the Neo Prog thing. I'm so curious to hear what other stuff sounded like because really like when it comes to anything outside of like 80s Rush and a little bit of 80s Genesis, I don't really listen to a whole lot of prog rock coming from the 80s. Um same except for the, and and this record too because I've I've listened to this record for a long time. This was probably the one of the this was newer to you, right? Yeah, I had heard this a long time ago, and it wasn't my cup of tea, and yeah. I, I didn't really dig into it, so I had forgotten a lot about it, and then I heard it again. So yeah. that opens it up into my impressions of it, if you want yeah. to go down that route. Yeah, well, I think, yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you what was your uh, your first thoughts on it, and listening to it now, like you listened to it then, wasn't a big fan of it. I knew that going into, or when we, when we were starting this, um, but did you have anything change? Um, after listening to it maybe a few years later yeah no i liked it more and uh, this show has definitely helped me kind of expand my musical palette and be more uh i guess considerate uh just just really being more objective when you're looking at a piece of music even if you yeah. don't like it uh, except for pawn hearts oh shoot <laughs> <laughs> that's gonna be just a common trope on this show i'm sorry that is that's and we've gotten so me. we've gotten so many it's people so being flack. like yeah, so many people being like, you know, and they've honestly been respectful about it. They've been like, I get it. I didn't like it at first, but like the seventh listen around, I love it. I'm like, it took you seven? Like, it takes me a couple. No, it takes me like a couple listens. I get it. I totally listen? get it. There are, I totally oh, get Lord. needing multiple listens to kind oh, yeah, of I get let it, it yeah. sink in and 100%. enjoy something. But I'm sorry, if you're going past the number five, I think that there, I think at that point you're just under hypnosis. <laughs> I think that you just like, in a way, you're so like chained to this. Piece oh, you want to like it so bad. It's like Stockholm syndrome. It's like oh. you, like like you've just started to relate to your your the people who have captured you, and just <laughs> oh my gosh, 
your oh captors are now your friends. It's Stockholm Syndrome. Oh. That's what Pawn Hearts is. If you, that's what, what it is. If you like Pawn Hearts, it's because it has like stolen your soul away. Oh my gosh. And you just now have like, okay, are... this is now I, I am signing my life away to Supreme <laughs> Leader this Man Erg. God, I, <laughs> I don't know. Sorry, we're, we're ripping gonna, on it too much. It, we're, we're gonna not, get torn apart for bad. this. It's not. It's not. That bad. And that's the thing. I think I hope people realize is that we joke about hating it, and we do. But it's, <laughs> it's one of those things that, that we don't. No, not that bad. And obviously, if you like it, then that's cool. That's that's totally awesome. Oh, um, shoot. All right, I'm playing your favorite song in the record. So why don't you tell yeah, us a little, about, a little bit about why you like some of the elements on this album, particularly like more personal I'm gonna, opinion about it. Sure, I'm gonna go into my I'm gonna go into my whole thing here. All right. Sure. Yeah, I'm yeah. Start from the very beginning. Um, it's a very good place to start. Just kind of right? your over overview of the whole thing. See like what your... I did there? The sound of music. Did you get the reference? I I, I just forget it. Just forget Muzak? it. Is that what you're going no. for there? Music. Um. Anyways, the I I remember hearing this and not liking it, and I listened to it this time, and I listened to it a couple of times. I, I I did enjoy it it is one of those things where the majority of the songs on here have a pleasant melody in all almost all phases of the song yeah song wow album of the entire album most pieces on here are just really well composed yeah they're they're pleasant melodies they're good strong rock songs yeah here's here's the thing though holy crap (laughs) Holy crap. First thing I noticed way back when I heard this several years ago, and then again listening to it now, it reminds me a lot of corporate rock or arena rock. Arena okay? rock like stuff, yeah. Like Journey or Boston or Def Leppard or Scorpion and Poison. Not hating on these bands at all, but they all kind of have their formula. You know what I mean? They all sure. kind of have their formula, and they all kind of have a similar sound, and it kind of you know kind of that music that blurs the line between you know kind of that rock slash hair metal type of music you know bon jovi and all that kind of stuff where it just it's very formulaic music right i mean kaylee sounds like that to me that track sure very produced and very simple not bad again enjoyable melody yeah well written very good guitar tones i say good that's a very vague term um but what you're hinting at is like we're, we're loosely labeling this as being prog rock is that what you're getting at kind or of, is it kind of yeah. but see okay. let, I, i'm gonna keep going because there are some definite identifiable prog pieces in here that you don't find in guns and roses or scorpion or yeah you know what i mean yeah so the american so, the american rock yeah okay yeah yeah. Yeah. The Americanized version. Yeah. Um, there, but, but in this album, there's basic guitar solos or droning ambient guitars over broad keyboard chords, simple chord progressions, predictable, albeit pleasant melodies, building arpeggios, high male vocals that remind me of Steve Perry from journey. I think that's why I wasn't a huge fan of it at first. I'm just going through my notes here. Sure. It, it does deviate from the norm. And shows its progressive colors with spoken word portions like in Bittersweet. The fact that they speak in it. I think that that's not something that instantaneously makes you a prog, you know. No, yeah, yeah. Classifies you. But it is common in a lot of them because it's kind of conceptual and it's a bit sure. theatrical and perform, you know, 
kind of in a performance in a way. And that kind of makes me think of art rock, which again is kind of on the cusp of prog rock and very similar to it. Yeah. Um, and songs like Waterhole have that unorthodox vocal melody, right? But mm-hmm. still really fun and very groovy. Um, and, you know, it does have longer songs, right? It has these pieces like, you yeah, know, Blind Curve and Blind Curve and Bittersweet, bittersweet. and all that stuff. So um, it's very theatrical with the vocals, like I said. Um, yeah, he's got that kind of, he's kinda, got that Gabriel kind of feel. It, it, yeah, and it sounds like a like a musical in a way, like it's sung by a character in a show. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, it does remind me of Peter Gabriel, like you said. Yeah. Um, so, it, yeah, uh, they do blend together as well, which kind of makes it a concept album. I think that helps lend to that's, the idea that it yeah. is a concept record. That that's what I was mentioning before. It is like musically. And the, the the musically the way the, the album is composed it makes it sort of conceptual there 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 are definitely that that sort of conceptual hints to it with the the flowing of the song like you know you have a two minute song flowing straight into a nine minute song and stuff like that as well as the um, uh, the musical motifs like that the uh, the right. thing from the thing from lavender comes back in several different areas of the record and mm-hmm. uh, and that that to me sounds very is a very kind of like i guess concept album trope uh or, or if that makes sense or or even a musical trope uh to to return to stuff like that but yeah it, from the from the lyrical content side you were like yeah it's kind of eh kind of but there are some that's really good like there are parts in it that are really good and i don't think i don't think it has to be super esoteric or anything like i said earlier but that no. was a key element of the early prog rock pioneers and i don't know i i know i hold him up on a pedestal but neil peart just had a way of creating both intellectually satisfying and yet relatable lyrics in the 80s yes he just had a talent for that and i think that that in and of itself was kind of prog rockish where it was like the topics are simple there's things that a lot of people can relate to but the way you word it is a bit it makes you think a bit more than it would be of than just saying you know i miss this girl also that's the other thing it Mm -hmm. wasn't it wasn't just love or you know rocking or you know what i mean like the rock and roll lifestyle that a lot of you know, bands like ACDC, again, these kind of American bands seem to yeah. really yeah, the American, focus on. Yeah. But, uh, anyways, it, 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 this album also doesn't like showcase very much virtuosity either, uh, as much as the early prog rockers. Um, there mm-hmm. are some sections that are cool and that are complex with some on time signatures and really interesting coordinated riffs and rhythms, like the Lords of Backstage. Yes. Um, that's my favorite one. Oh, it's um, great. But yeah, waterhole and waterhole too. Yeah, um, both of those are terrific. Because it, has, um, it just has like there's a lot more movement in those tracks. Some of the other ones are. It's a very slow album. Like if you notice, like the tempos that most of these songs are at are really slow. Yeah, it's pretty slow. It's a it's a slow, not like not, not metaphorically slow, but literally just a slow tempo think, album for most for for a lot of it. And then you know, right. I mean, White Feather, Lords of the Backstage, Waterhole. It's it's got a it's got a mix, but 
I think the yeah. thing that, that really got me about this record, in a bad sense, the reason I didn't really care for it back then, and the reason that now it's still just not really a top one for me, sure. is that a lot of the songs sound very similar. And it's not just because they incorporate the motifs again over and over, but like, just what we're listening to right now. Like, the drums are just very basic. Mm -hmm. And what's going on in the background? Very long... Yeah, diamonds. Just diamonds yeah. being played. Diamonds with a with a solo. So there's broad guitar and a lot and a lot of these songs. A lot of them. Not all. A lot. Broad guitar and keyboard chords behind an ambient lead, guitar oh. riff, or solo. Sometimes they add a reverby guitar arpeggio on top of this while the lead singer takes over. Yep. But this is the best part of the entire thing right here. The sounds are very well designed. The oh, sounds well, yes. are very well designed. I'll give it that. It it's just, a great sounding record. It is a great it, sounding record. It's yeah. produced very well. Yeah. Uh, but they just, a lot of the tracks sound super, super similar to me. I and get that. It just seems very basic. Um, I think one thing that I will. I we're, do on, appreciate. we're on the argument. We're on the argument here of it being like prog rock, not the not the the fact that you didn't like it or like it because it was not complex enough or yada yada yada, right? That's that's the the conversation that we're having right now. This is really just more about like your personal taste with it, not a, or, or not personal taste with it, but like we're more so talking about like the reasons why this is like prog rock. Kind of I was drifting in between or... the two topics. Okay. I was, okay. <laughs> I was, I was like, wait, my... are, we, are we talking about like, you didn't like it because it was this or you did like it? No, okay. this was just my personal taste. Gotcha. But earlier I was talking about what does make it different from right. Right. other okay. pieces and why it would be considered prog. Okay. All right. Uh, because it, you know, it is, it is, um, it absolutely is prog rock, but, um, it's it's interesting. It's a, it's an interesting mixed bag. Um, yeah. I did enjoy it. That's that's the one thing that I want to be clear. I did, it's they're, they're again they're pleasant sounding songs. They sound good and they're fun to sing along with. And you know again it sounds really good. The mm -hmm. sound even of just the drums too and the yeah everything. Oh, it's got the, that '80s. It's the '80s sound. The it is. It's a very reverbs. '80s sound, but it works very well yeah. combined with the guitar tones. That you've gotten there so yeah yeah i have a i have a theory um when it comes to the way that the album was composed and i may be totally off here but it's something to think about um there's a a quote that i found online of of, of mark kelly talking about this record and he, he says quote it was the album that saved us and yeah what did they needed to be saved from well you know in 1984 I mean, they, they were they were looking pretty good from the outside. Like they had five top forty singles, two top twenty albums with script of Jester's Tear in nineteen eighty three and nineteen eighty four's Fugazi. But in fact, they were actually in danger of being dropped by the record company EMI. Yeah, so, I saw that too. Yep for their for, so for their last single, uh, I think it's Assassin. I, I don't know if that's pronounced correctly. Um, as they done with the whole of um, Fugazi. There were quotes, we were viable or liable, excuse me, we were liable for 50% of the cost. So looking back, we were on a bit of a bit of a knife edge. Said uh right. Kelly says. So Scriptus Jester Tier had sold about 120,000. Fugazi cost twice as much, but sold less. 
So if we carried on the way we were going, we weren't going to be financially viable. So, you know, if, if they're starting with the whole, uh, you know, prog rock, which, which they had that sort of neo-prog fan base coming from the, the prog rock stuff, the Genesis whole, that whole thing, that was kind of their, that was their fan base going on in that area. It could be argued that they did this out of, out of fear, um, coming wanting to simplify some things, possibly. Now, to the other two albums that beforehand, I have not listened to them, so I don't know the differences between like a, the differences between maybe how out there or how um, risky their previous two albums were. But some could possibly argue that this album was safe and it was easy to try and get a radio hit. And Kaylee huh. was supposed to be formulaic because they needed money. They needed some right. cash because this band was not going to be going on right. if this record didn't do well. So I, I have no evidence of that online whatsoever. That was just something I found, I deduced from the information that I found online about the record and what where right. they were going into this. Um, right. As we know with 2112 by Rush, they said, screw you guys. And we're, we're going to continue doing our own thing. Um, well, I think that you know, that was kind of Marillion in a sense, too. They were kind of similar to that because yes. I don't think it was Same meant situation. to be to, to just kind of argue a little bit with that. I don't think it was meant to be safe, per se. Yeah. Because the fact that it's a concept record in general. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Maybe they maybe they struck the balance. Maybe like this is a concept record, but there are some very commercial tracks on here that we can put singles that we you know can make singles. Yeah. I mean, and, Kaylee's Kaylee's Merillion's most successful and, song. Right. And Lavender period. was really big too. Yeah. Um, and yeah. So maybe, maybe, yeah, they kind of struck a balance between the two. But I don't think yeah. they went into it saying that this needs to be safe because I mean no. the whole. Yeah. origin of the idea of this came from an acid trip and you can't really right. be very safe with that so yeah exactly uh and <laughs> yeah no you're right you're right um i saw a couple reviewers say that um that this exercises restraint in a good way uh, it, you were telling me about that yeah it's perfectly concise sometimes prog does wander too far off it just does and it lacks restraint this is not overly grandiose with song length. It lasts as long as it should on each track. That's the best like way that. to say it. Last it long as it should. Yeah, and each track has value and a pleasant melody. Like there, there's a reason for each one of the tracks on here. And even if you don't like one as much as you do the other, it, it, it doesn't seem to go on too long. Let's put it that way. And I know a lot of people can complain about Frog and say that it does sometimes just wander a bit too far. Yeah. Um, but. This is perfectly concise for a prog record, and I appreciate that. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, like like we mentioned before, the compositions are just like they're they're good. They're just they just are. I mean, the, the way that the album is constructed, it's yeah, it's concise and it doesn't wander. And, and what you said before is that they held restraint, right. which is like they had more possibly more to give, but chose to keep it. I, I, maybe maybe they chose to keep it simple or, or chose to serve the music in the way that it needed to be served. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, whatever that mindset was, I don't know that. I wasn't in the band, so. Right. Um, but yeah, I like it. That's a, that's a good way of describing it. Right. I think we could talk about the concept if you want. It's a concept record, supposedly. Yeah, yeah we, sh we, should mention we should talk a little bit about it. Um, 
Yeah. It... I'll, I'll right. just say this. I'll say this. I think <laughs> ultimately the theme running through the album is is inspired by his life so far. Yeah, I think so too. It kind of like, like I'm like, all right, is this kind yeah. of like a autobiographical, but like, I don't know. It reminds me of Forrest Gump. It's not really much of a plot in Forrest Gump. It's just you're going through this dude's life events, and it's very captivating. Dude, that is all the good. Cool adventures that he's had. That is good. Uh, I mean, not, not it's not a not book per se, mentally challenged more... or anything, but it's right. just kind of it's like a series of of different things. This is what this is what I this is what I said. Um. I also said it was very melodramatic, which is something that I always have a problem with. Uh, you need to get you, you need to get you a shirt that says I do. I do. I have one already. You do. One of my friends. One of my friends from college. Yeah. Oh, you we mentioned other, that. Yeah, That's we made right. each other shirts because she loved noir films, and like a lot of times when she would see a film and it reminded her of like a, a noir trope, she'd be like, "Oh, that's so noir," and whenever we watched something with me and I really disliked it, a part of it was because the performance was melodramatic. And I was like, that's a little melodramatic. Like, okay, <laughs> tone it down. And she got me a shirt that said, that's a little melodramatic. And so I got her a shirt that said, that's so noir. Um, that's hilarious. So anyways, but this does seem very melodramatic uh, in some senses, but as far as the actual content of the concept, I say the songs focus on a man who is coming to grips with the world after a series of depressive episodes, heartbreak, like with Kaylee and lavender, um, drunken States, like in water, waterhole, um, and, you know, engaging in, you know, prostitution, uh, and all of that with blue angel section of bittersweet. Yeah. Um, and he's, he's doing these things to numb the pain and he's realizing the injustice of the world. Like you see that on blind curve with vocal or sorry, threshold, that whole section, all of those lyrics deal with like, Hey, how can you, you know, he describes a series of really horrible things happening in the world. Um, and then, so it's just kind of a bunch of really sad slash crazy things going on through his life. Cause he doesn't like the way the world is. He doesn't like the way he is. He doesn't like the way his relationship ended. This just, guy needs some therapy. Hopefully with the money that they got from this album, he went and got himself some therapy. You know what I mean? I would hope so. Yeah. I would hope so. Um, <laughs> but shoot, but then it takes a hopeful turn at the end because he sees a reflection of himself as a child. And it like, that's the whole theme of it is a child, you know, misplaced childhood. And he's focusing on the innocence and beauty of kind of that childhood mentality of mm -hmm. dreaming and seeking of a better world, a world where it's not as complicated, blah, 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 a world where you're not having to give in to the man or the powers that be in a political sense or even in a corporate sense or whatever. Right. So that's kind of the end is like in the childhood's end that, that song, he's just reflecting yeah. on himself and he sees the child within himself and he realizes the dream, the childhood dream uh, and the, the youthful spirit doesn't have to die. And you, you yeah. know, which, and, you know, I the whole personally, the, Sorry, go ahead. Continue. No, no, you go ahead. You go ahead. Well, what I was going to say is I, I wanted to add a note for that song. We're going to listen to Childhood's End at the end of the episode, but I love the musical depictions of the lyrics in that song. Like, it's very light and uplifting. Those guitar chords, are, are they, yes. they fit very well. I like the yeah. way that all of that sits, and it's, it's yeah, I really like that song. Right. But, and then, you know, at the end with uh, White Feather, it's kind of this, we're all joining in together, this whole, like, almost like we are the world in a way, uh, you know, because they're singing all the, 
the what does he say? The I don't know. Let's find out. Shoot. Yeah, just know, play let's it. Find out real quick. <laughs> hold on, hold on. It's the something. Is he saying children? I'm I'm trying to remember the lyrics now. Sorry, I don't know them as well. Um, yeah, no, it's children. I was right. All okay. the Chicago children. children. People are singing that in the background while he's still singing. We will carry your white flag. We will swear yep. we have no nation. Blah blah. Yeah, that's a cool song too. I really like it's this song. It's a good song. It's a good song. But like, it's this. That's that's the end of it. Is where, uh, you know kind of has this idealistic ending of like uniting to make the world a better place and defining the injustice of political powers um you know he, he has all the world's children quote unquote and i think what children is supposed to be there is children meaning the childlike spirit in everyone yes yeah i would uniting agree uniting to make the world a, uh, a better place and defying the injustice of political powers and corporate powers everyone above yeah blah 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 yeah, um, and, and coming out of this as well, I mean, Fish, at the time when he was writing this, was 27 years old, so he's he's in that area of starting to feel the loss. Of, yeah, like, he's kind childhood. of on that, yeah. It he's on that verge of... into the whole yep. adulthood. Yep, exactly. Which uh, is not, not all it's cracked up to be kids. Shoot! Um, yeah, but... Uh, <laughs> it's... Again, it's it, it's an interesting. Oh, and you know, he had this whole concept while he was on an acid trip, and yep. I love the way he like the story. I don't know if you read this, Dustin, but the story. Sorry, but the story was he hadn't taken acid in a while, and then he takes it. He takes half of it, right? Because one right, one right, little right. bit of it will do a lot. Yeah, and I mean, I wouldn't know. He takes but... half of it and it didn't kick in yet. And he was like, hmm, I guess I've built up some kind of tolerance. Or he just didn't think it worked or something. He was like, I'll take the second half, too. Yeah, on his and way he... to Steve Rothery's. Yeah. On his way and to his he house. Was like, it turned into a bad trip. And out of that, he kind of wrote this, this whole thing. But he wrote, I think, the whole concept in a fair portion, if not all of the lyrics, in like that trip in like 10 hours kind of eight hour stint wow. of him being kind of stoned and then he he wrote it in that time uh yeah. it's an okay concept again i i, I think it's not it's groundbreaking but it is grounded in reality no, but it's i i again yeah like you said i kind of like that it is more grounded in reality but i don't know there's something to me about the fantastical elements of kind of the early prog where you can i i think Unfortunately, a lot of Prague pioneers didn't really articulate what they were trying to say very well. It seemed like they were creating worlds without actually having a message to what that should be. Sure. Or if they did, it was just super obscure. It was hard to tell. You like no one can understand what you're saying. I mean, look at John Anderson's lyrics. Yeah. Like, what is yeah. It? what? <laughs> what are you doing, is, dude? Close to the edge makes no sense. It's one of my favorite records, but it it it's not something you can easily <laughs> identify what the hell he's trying to say i will say and again always put them up on a pedestal and i always will but neil peart was one of the few exceptions where i was like i know what he's saying the whole hemisphere thing is dividing between you know the kind of duality of 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 man are you someone who's very logical and reasonable or are you someone who act, enjoys feeling emotion and obviously you can be both right and that's a universal concept and everybody that is, a lot yeah. of people can relate to and it but it was it was set in a Greek, mytho Greek mythological universe. Yeah. And, you know, 
Cygnus was a character he created to be the balance between the two. Like that's a really cool idea. And it's yet the topic is something people can relate to. So right. it, he didn't always succeed. I mean, Cygnus X one, the first one is like, what? It's just a cool jam, but what, who is this guy? Why right. is he going yeah. here? Yeah. But on the whole, he did a, a better, a, a great job um, compared to a lot of early prog rock. Again, these bands that I love, but their lyrics, let's be honest, are kind of like, what? Kind of nutty. What? They're kind of, <laughs> shoot. <laughs> Dude, that's some nutty stuff. Some nutty stuff. Anyways. Um, I have a fun that's the end little, of our show. Uh, Bye. Holy crap. Just We're going <laughs> to. Drew's, Drew's gone. Bye. I, have, I, wanted, I wanted to say this because I find this to be slightly ironic and kind of funny <laughs> to me, but Kaylee was, like I said before, it was Marillion's most successful song, but the success led to turmoil for Fish. I mean, he ended up leaving the band a few years later, and I find this kind of sad in a way because when I looked up, like trying to find out the reasons why he left the band, he said, few years later he blamed it as being quote self-inflicted paranoias and negligent management um is he saying management from like the music company or i guess i guess probably i don't know probably music he's probably blaming i doubt that he's taking the blame on that one himself but and then they obviously regrouped with the new lead singer being steve hogarth uh who first appeared on their 1989 album season's end um, another fun fact I wanted to tell you about is I told you about this, that Marillion opened for Rush. Yeah, they did. Yep. Yeah, I read that too. On they opened two, for Rush. Yeah, on two different tours. Once on the uh, pre-Grace Under Pressure tour for a five-night stand at Radio City Music Hall in New York City in, dis- in support of the Fugazi album, and then again on the Power Windows tour in support of Misplaced Childhood. And I found this in a book called Marillion Separated Out, The Complete History, uh, which can be found on Amazon. There are a few excerpts of the tour with Rush performing Misplaced Childhood that I find kind of hilarious. Quote, this is an excerpt from the book. Then it was time for a second bash at those West Atlantic shores, playing five nights at New York's illustrious Radio City Hall in support of Rush. It all sounded wonderful. The stage was enormous. We had to take a lift to get to it. That's elevator for those not versed in Brit. <laughs> However, if the last tour attempt had been a crisis, this was an, an this was an abject disaster. The band were restricted to ten minute sound checks and limitless rules and regulations about what Whoa. they could and could not do. But before the gig, there were invariably be a Peter Gabriel or Genesis track playing. At the time, Marillion was trying its hardest to remove any perceived association of their music to Genesis. And when we actually walked out on stage, the fans treated us like unwashed peasants. It was awful, terrible, and humbling. The audience hated us. I remember one guy standing on a seat in the front row with his trousers down. It was a nightmare. Wow. Wow. Said, quote, end quote, Mark Kelly, the keyboardist of Marillion. Later wow. in the book, which I find hilarious because I just don't see Rush fans doing stuff like that. Maybe in the 80s, no. they, I mean, obviously in the 80s, they did. But that yeah. sucks, dude. Wow. But later in the book, in March of the following year, 1986, the band finally reached the West Coast of the USA. It had taken Misplaced Childhood, along with its 25,000 U.S. album sales, to convince Capitol Records that a full U.S. tour would be viable. Even then, 
12 of the 23 dates were supporting Russia's stadium crowds on its Power Windows tour. This was a brave move considering the band's last attempts to support Rush. However, this time the band had achieved success in their own right and were no strangers to 20,000 audience or 20,000 20, member audiences and had to receive Rush's assurances that there would be no repeat. This time, quote, this time they asked us back, recalls Mark. Quote, when we arrived, they left a bottle of champagne in the dressing room. Indeed, the time the crowds were more receptive. Rush's oh. legacy proved strong. Our audiences have always been the strongest places where we, when we toured with Rush, comments Mark. Wow. Thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. So they had, but that just, that sucks. Dude. This album, they toured this album with Power Windows and Rush, and they hated it in the U.S. They just, they hated it. And following year, it took the it, it took them a hot minute. They had finally twenty five thousand album sales. Convinced Capitol Records to do the tour. Went on tour with them, and their audience proved strong. And uh, and Rush's audience liked liked the record and liked how it was um, uh, or when they performed with Rush. So I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. So, and that was from a, like I said, if anybody's interested, it's a book called Marillion separated out the complete history and, uh, and it can, you can find it on Amazon. You just type it in. So, Oh, also just one more fun fact. Uh, it's not a surprise in 2017, uh, who else, but Steven Wilson, obviously yep. did a high resolution stereo and 5.1 surround mix of the record. Yep. So what a shock, right? What a shock. He's there. remixed every prog thing. Oh, it's it's crazy. It, it, yeah, he's he's got his name on everything. He's he's done everything from Tangerine Dream to freaking XTC to like right. I mean, it's everything. He's he's done he's done all kinds of different remixes and stuff like that. So, yeah. but uh, but anyway, wow, we actually talked a lot about Neo Prague, I think, and and just the whole idea of this entire era more than the actual music itself. But hopefully, we. Uh, please some people with our thoughts on it um we do have some really really good news for everybody um and we'll kind of shift gears for a little bit uh, unless drew unless you have anything to say that you would like to no no, no? i'm okay. good let's yeah. great um we have some really really awesome news um and so but uh the, the reason why drew and i started the show was to connect more people to progressive rock music and and the feedback on that has been absolutely incredible i mean the show has introduced uh we've we've uh talked to people who um never heard of prog rock uh who listened to our show and now found an album that they really enjoyed we've also attracted some avid prog fanatics you know who you are to the show something that uh comes up frequently in our conversations with with you all uh via email and uh and, and on instagram is that the is we all don't have many uh friends or family to share our music taste with. Um, so what we're going to do is is try and help and change that. Yeah, so we've started a production on a Prog Notes newsletter. It's called Show Don't Tell, um, which it's, it just includes a bunch of bonus content from our episodes, Prog yeah. playlists uh, that Dustin and I have created, news from the Prog world, um, different reviews that we have found that we have referenced on here or may have excluded on here. Um, materials we mentioned on the show, like back uh, with the, the book, you know, the book in yep. uh, D Lost in the Comatorium. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And all and, that uh, for that episode. Yep. 
Um, and uh, the big thing, I think the biggest thing is uh, there's going to be on this newsletter, you can click and join uh, once you've gotten the newsletter for the Prognotes Community Discord channel. Uh, so we love connecting with you guys through social media. That's like, it's really awesome. And through email, that's oh, it's excellent. Great. But now we'd love for you guys to talk with each other about this and yeah. see what different listeners have to say um, about what we've talked about on the show, what they think some of their favorite prog music is. And yeah, just a big community for people to, to kind of share and listen, uh, you know, their thoughts and opinions about yeah. this genre. Yeah, it's it's going to be great. So we're, And we're going to roll this out extremely soon everybody so if you'd like to join you can check out literally any episode's podcast description uh, including this one for www.prognotespodcast.com slash community sign up it's 100 free we'll post the link all over social media and our email to make sure you have access to it yeah we're super excited to share more prog rock uh material just with, with all of you oh yeah and connect with all of you guys on a regular basis it'll be fun yeah so hopefully we can now we've connected with you all, but we'd like to connect you with each other and, and maybe create a little bit more of a community for all of us. Um, and first on the agenda for this community channel is a game. And I've told Drew about this game, but he has no idea what this is. No, you've just said, I've got a game. I've got a game that is going to be kind of cool. So what I've done is I have packed together 22 snippets of songs from the show that we've covered in 56 seconds. And if you can guess all 22 songs in order you can post the answers in our discord channel okay so you're gonna have to probably gonna have to get ready to pause and rewind this because you'll probably need to hear it twice okay you ready for this oh shoot hold on hold on hold yep. on all right you want me do to... i need a pen and paper you'll probably need a pen and paper you're not gonna be able to write all these down that fast you didn't tell me i'd need paper i didn't tell you that i mean we, we are on. in the digital hold age on. hold right? on give me hold 22, on 22 22 songs in 56 seconds. So yeah, I mean, type it out if you want to. All right. Hold on. I don't know if I type or write fast. <laughs> no, one, no one knows. Uh, hold on. Let's let's create a new little right, fresh document here. Yep. Hold on. All right, here we go. Are you ready for this? Oh, hold on. Okay. Hold on. Uh, <laughs> there's 22 of them. Okay. It's 22. There's 22 of them. There's Number 22. one. Let's go. Here we go. All right. 22 songs, 56 seconds. Here they are. Whoa. No. Give it up. Think, did you get so, all 22? <laughs> not at all. I didn't have time. <laughs> okay, yeah. So um, so everybody can head over to prognotespodcast.com slash community sign up. Join and post your answers. You can connect with other prog fanatics. Maybe find some more prog outside of the one album a month that we do. And make sure you guys sign up before May 31st of 2020 
because that will be the day the first newsletter launches. And that is that is it. So wow. you're gonna I to, can you're gonna do to go it. Back and rewind I just, that. I yeah, I've gotta take it piece by piece. <laughs> Jeez. It's a lot. That's so fast. I know, it was a lot. So. Oh man. Well, we'd like to thank you all very much for listening to our podcast. Whoa. Uh, these are our prog notes. If you enjoyed the episode, learn something new from the episode, please subscribe to our brand new newsletter and share. Also, you can follow us on Instagram at prog underscore notes. These are links. Uh, these links are in the show's description. Uh, Destin, what is the next episode that we're doing? What's the album that we're going to cover? Yeah. Uh, so next episode, we're going to be discussing uh, Grow by the American prog and math rock band Chon. Um, so we're going to dive into, we've, we've done some neo-prog here. We're going to dive into some of the math rock side of modern prog rock. And, uh, and since most of the album is instrumental, joining us on the show will be a man by the name of Pusher. He is a musician and producer from Toronto, Canada. He's toured internationally as a DJ, supporting artists like the Chainsmokers, Diplo, Phantoms, and Knower. Uh, I personally discovered him online on YouTube doing an analysis of a Bill Wirtz track. And uh, I was extremely impressed with how he analyzed the music and explained it. And so I'm super excited for him to join us and talk about this band. You guys don't want to miss this. It's going to be interesting. Yeah. Well, that's it for us, guys. Join us next time as we discover the past, present, and future of Frog Rock. We'll end this episode with childhood. <laughs> Childhood's end. Childhood's end? Childhood's end? Not to confuse with Childhood's End off of Obscured by Clouds, because it does not have the question mark. Question mark. That's but now how you delineate. We, that's how you delineate yeah. between the two songs, at yeah. least in my yeah. iTunes library. Yeah. I'm, Shoot. I'm, yeah. Shoot. Oh my All right, goodness. guys. Uh, we kind of derailed that ending there. But uh, we will see you soon on our community channel. See you guys soon. Thanks. <laughs>